0: So this morning, we're going to keep going, and uh, unless it takes till uh, 3 o'clock, we're going to try to finish up Romans chapter 1. Okay, I'm not going to go that long, but uh, I know it's a huge section of verses from 18 to 32, but I really don't want to break it up because Paul is making one singular point here. He's addressing the sin of the Gentiles specifically. So he's been called as an apostle to give the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul is not only eager to do that, but he's not he's not unashamed. He should be unash he should be ashamed if he were caring about what the world thought, if he if he cared about um what the world thought of his foolishness and preaching the gospel, but He's not ashamed, and he's eager to share the gospel. We talked about this last week. It's kind of a revision. He's eager to share the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. That is extremely important. Without the gospel, no one will be saved. If you don't believe that, you need to check the word. I, I, I can't say it more than enough. Our actions are not enough to save anyone. Our witness and our actions is not enough. We must share the gospel. Because if we do not share the gospel, they will not be saved. That doesn't mean that God can't use your example and they ask somebody else. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying though is if we care enough for the souls of those we love, we have to share the gospel. And we can't just throw words out there and hope that they'll work. We need to know the gospel. And that's what Paul is about to explain. And like I talked about last week, we kind of have four things that must be included in the gospel. Our accountability to God and our problem as men. and then So that's second. And then third, what Christ did for us. And fourth, how will we respond? Those are essential to the gospel message. If we are not willing to deal with sin and our accountability to God, then the gospel has no value. And so the gospel must include all these things, and it's salvation to everyone who believes. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our background, where we came from, the church we grew up in, or whether we were a Jew or Greek, no. For the Apostle Paul and for us, the gospel is salvation to those who believe. It is not based on who we are, where we came from, or what we think we can do to earn it. And then if you look at verse 17, he he reiterates this by saying that it's the power of God for salvation because... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That righteousness that He gives to His people. That's the righteousness He's talking about. The imputed righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that He declares about us. And this righteousness that He declares is from faith, so it creates faith in us, it generates faith in us, but it finishes faith in us. So it's the faith, it, that righteousness, seeing that righteousness, it creates faith and it keeps us in the faith till the end. It's a means of God's grace to keep us. And then he, he bases and grounds his argument on uh, what we read last week, where it says, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Again, Our righteousness is in faith, so we live by it. Our righteousness is from God. If you look in the Old Testament, when someone was considered righteous, it was never because of something they did. I I was reminded of this uh, when listening to a sermon about the Psalms. Every time you see the word righteous in the book of Psalms, It's always referring to righteousness by faith. It's never referring to anything but that. So if we are righteous, declared righteous by God, we will live believing that. And it transforms our life. Because we believe we are called righteous, we are working out that righteousness in the world. We're living as though we're righteous. Because God has said we are. So, now we actually get to what we're going to talk about today. Since God has revealed His righteousness to us, we also have Paul as he transitions. He's he's starting to share the full gospel with us. And so in verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So in this section, Paul is really comparing the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven with the righteousness of God that is revealed. It's a contrast. The difference is belief, faith. If you believe, it is righteousness that has been given to you. If not, you're seeing the wrath of God. This is the contrast that we're seeing. That the wrath of God is revealed to whom? What does it say here? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, if we are in sin, if we are still living for ourselves, then the wrath of God is revealed to us. But if we are righteous, declared righteous by God, we see His righteousness revealed to us and in us. Paul does not want us to leave thinking, well, you were righteous before. You just, God just cleaned you up a little bit. No. The wrath of God was revealed against all ungodliness. We were ungodly. I believe ungodly here is referring to idolatry, all that takes the place of God in our life. And then when he says unrighteousness, immorality, the way that we live around the world with people, immorality. And this wrath, it's, it's not just a, an emotional wrath, you know, like, um, somebody that goes into a rage. No. It's not just that. And it's not just a, a surgical, you know, God's going to take care of this. It's a mixture of God's wrath. And, and I really like, there's a commentary by a man named John Murray, and he said this of, of this word wrath. He says, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. When we are unrighteous and ungodly, God cannot stand that in His presence. That's why it's such an honor and a grace of God that we can come to Him. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Before, what was the case? Remember we talked about holiness not too long ago. God's holiness was such that only one man could come in once a year to his presence, and yet we have the whole, the opportunity daily to come into his presence and to experience his presence. What an honor! We deserved God's wrath, and and this wrath is isn't just here. It's interesting. Paul uses the same language in Ephesians chapter 5 and I want us to turn there because <coughs> Paul is wanting to get at why. He's about to explain why God's wrath is poured out on men. Why they're ungodly. Why they're unrighteous. He's, he's like a surgeon. He's going out, down into the wound to figure out why, why these symptoms are here. So Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll just read and comment really quick, 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Again, God is calling them saints, and therefore they should live as saints, not to earn something, but because they are something. Verse 4, And there must be no filth- filthiness ugh, filthiness, and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then verse 6, he's kind of using the same word. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So He's made this list of immoral actions, and He says this is the reason that the wrath of God comes upon the on men. Then, if you turn to Colossians, because Paul uses almost identical language here as he does here in Ephesians, I just want us to to see this that. Romans chapter 1 is not just a new thing. Actually, the book of Ephesians and Colossians are both written before the book of Romans. Chronologically, it's just when we organize the letters, we organize the biggest to the smallest. So, Colossians 3, 1 through 6 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, because of this, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Those things lead to the wrath of God is what he's saying. And it's going to seem, when we get back to Romans, that Paul is contradicting himself in a sense. Because Paul is addressing the root of these sins. He's addressing why these sins have come to pass. He in verse, verses um, 29 through 31, he has a similar list of sins, but these are the result of rejecting God. God lets them go. So, yes, the wrath of God is poured out because of these sins, but really it started with rejecting God. And that's what I want us to see. So in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And they, what do they do? It says here in the NASB, it says, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I like the idea or the picture of, well, that's not a good idea, but just think of uh, a king and there's one man or a group of people who are constantly spreading lies about that person or truth let's say they' tr- let's say uh, this king is doing wicked things and and this king realizes if I don't hide them away lock them away they're gonna tell the whole kingdom the truth about me so what does he do he puts them in prison this is the same idea the same word they the truth is being put away they don't want, to know the truth, they know the truth, but they're locking it away, hoping that it won't affect them anymore. Kind of, kind of, I think of the stories of different uh, men, like Richard Wurmbrand, who lived in Romania. He, sir, he was in prison for fourteen years, sometimes in complete isolation. Why? Because the communist regime wanted to suppress. Keep the truth away. They didn't want to know the truth and they didn't want anyone to know the truth because then they would lose power. And that's what the devil wants. He wants us to put the truth away, hide it away so that he can wreak havoc in our lives. That's what he wants to do. And that's what God is saying is the problem. That we're putting the truth in a box and saying stay there. We don't want anything to do with this. And this is a problem. Many people say, well, I don't know the truth really. I mean, well, what does verse 19 say say here? So he says they suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. They have no way of saying, we didn't know. Why? Right here. God. Showed it to them. And he's going to explain how. God made it clear to them. There is no excuse. The actions that we see again in in verses 29 through 31 are just symptoms pointing to the problem of the heart. The heart is the problem. We all know that. It, it's, it's easy to think about that. When we hear truth, what is our response? Do we want to say, mm, I don't like that. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that truth. That That confronts me. That makes me feel like I've lost something. If we keep suppressing truth, what happens? The implications of suppressing one truth lead to others and others, and eventually there's nothing to hold on to because we've ignored what the Word says. We've ignored what God says, and eventually we open the floodgates and we invite the world to bring its lies into our lives. As believers, as unbelievers, it doesn't matter. (coughs) Thinking of Romans chapter 2, we're really close, so let's look over there. Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15. Speaking of the Gentiles, again, verses 18 through 32, Paul is specifically addressing the Gentiles who do not have the Scriptures. And this is what he says in in chapter 2, which is where he's talking about the Jews specifically. He says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So no one is without excuse. That's what he's saying. The, The Apostle Paul is telling us there's no way that we can say, I didn't know better. How do we know that? He explains. chapter Verse 20, he says this, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. This is really interesting. You see the word invisible, right? His invisible attributes. And then he says, has been clearly seen. That seems like an oxymoron, right? Maybe, maybe this is just weird to me. I don't think so. So, in some way, though God's int- attributes are invisible, his righteousness, his power, specifically here, he talks about his eternal power, his Omnipotence, or omnipotence. And then his divine nature. These are things that you can't physically see. But God, what God is saying is, though they are invisible, the creation magnifies these things about God. They, they are designed to point to God. And I, I have an illustration that I really like. Uh, Gideon, if you could put up. It's like going to a watchmaker. Finding a watch on the street. Let's say you found this watch on the street. And you said, I think that just evolved from nothing. Well, it, the, the image isn't great, but I think that just evolved out of nothing. Huh? Is, is that really how it is as Christians? It, it just, you know, it just happened. No, they're going to be like, man, that's intricate. What? Look at all those pieces. Look at every, every part. There's, there, they, this is, This is too ornate to be just a happening, right? In the same way, with Christ, His creation speaks that there is a God and that God is all-powerful, that God has divine nature, kindness, goodness, justice. Because we see it in the world, it's written on our hearts. Just like when we look at this watch, we say, somebody made that. That is too good of work. And you can just keep it up there because we're going to refer back to this again. I, I love the picture of a watchmaker and a watch. It's, it's finite, but it gives us a picture of God. Just think of your own body, the, the intricacy of your eye, of how your, your retina works and all this. How, how your arms move. Just the body in general how they are still discovering things they didn't know about the body today, years and years and years and years and years later. And yet, many of these people will say, this evolved from nothing. They're suppressing the truth. They look at it, they see a designer, and they say, no, we don't want a designer. We want our own ideas. This truth that God has made His His world to speak truth should change the way we live. This is absolutely fundamental to Christian mission. God has not left a single soul on this earth with innocence of who God is, that there is a God. There is not a single person that if you went to the back jungles of Amazon that could say, well, they're innocent old. No. God has pointed to himself in creation. They are not innocent. There's a really good message by Paris Reedhead. I think it's him. Ten shekels and a shirt. And in this, he realized he had gone to the mission field And he just thought, oh, they're all innocent. Then he got there and he saw their sin. He saw how wicked they were and how they had ignored God. And when they heard the gospel message, they didn't want anything to do with it. And he realized for the first time in his life that they weren't innocent. They needed to hear the gospel. Some of them received. But it wasn't until he realized that they weren't innocent, that they needed a Savior. they are not without excuse. Whether we grow up in the church or we've never heard the name of Jesus Christ, we are not without excuse. From the beginning of time, God has been proclaiming who He is. Yes, we don't understand all of who God is from creation. That's why God has given us His Word. But from the beginning of time, from the moment He created Adam, God has been magnifying Himself, showing His invisible attributes in a visible world. He is giving us a picture of Himself. That way we can't come before His throne. I didn't know you existed. I thought all this happened out of nothing. No. Even the the most... Primitive, for lack of a better word, tribes, worship something. They worship a tree. They worship whatever. But God has shown Himself in creation. And the difference is, what are we going to worship? Are we going to worship His creation? Or are we going to worship the Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth? God put in the world, imprinted in His creation who He is so that no one will stand before Him without excuse. In verse 21, He goes on to explain this idea more. He says, So, for even though they knew God, so... There's a sense in which they knew God in their in their worldview, they, they as they grew and learned they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So God had revealed Himself to them. They knew enough about God to know that God existed. The problem is they did not want to honor God. This was us. When I say they, just put yourself in that picture. Every single one of us. If you are born again today, it's only by God's grace you aren't that way anymore. And if you're not born again, you need to find out and find hope. They were ungrateful and selfish. That's how I see it. They they were, they were wanted what they wanted. They didn't want to honor God. They wanted all that was in them. It started with Adam and Eve. You can be like God. That's what they bid on. They bid in the apple thing. Mm, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to know good from evil. Instead of believing that God cared for them. This knowledge, this is, this is the thing, this knowledge should have created worship. This is so important. They, from what they knew about God, from His creation, should have created worship for the Almighty God. But it did the opposite because they were wicked in their hearts just like we were. When we decide to suppress the truth, to hide the truth, We are saying to the world, we're saying to God, we don't want your truth. We want a God like us. And So they didn't honor God and and they started to make, the word here is, futile speculations about God. Oh, God is like this was like that da, da, da. and what happened is their foolish heart was darkened their heart became worse than it already was they they it was already dark but it even became worse such that they they couldn't even hear from him anymore verse 22 says professing to be wise they became fools I think of some people who no offense to certain brothers here who think that if they get a PhD or they have a PhD, they can they are wiser and smarter and they don't need God. Right? How many people have you met I have a PhD from Harvard? I can or from Cambridge or some great Ivy League or, or European school and they think, well, If if I have this, I am wise and so intelligent. But how many PhDs have you heard walk away from Christ? They have no desire to know God. I just think of Stephen Hawking. He died without Christ. He died without hope. He died because he did not believe in God. And when he died... I guarantee you on the other side all that knowledge was worthless. All that he had gained, all that he thought he knew was completely crushed in light of the truth of the gospel. Their speculation was worthless and it made them Think they were wise, and they boasted proudly, Oh, I'm so wise. But in reality, they became fools. I was reminded of, of how the Greeks, Greece, one of the wisest nations of the world, what did they worship? They worship diseases and human passions. Isn't that crazy? That's foolish. But they thought they were so wise. Because all these all their gods were gods of passion. If you think about it. Their gods were gods of passion. Or the Egyptians, they were considered elite and wisdom, wise. What do they they worshiped? Oxen and onions. I'm just throwing some things out there, okay? I mean, that is ridiculous. And if you if you don't believe that, it says Psalm 106 20 uh, that. You have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of oxen who eat grass. It reminds me much of Hinduism in India where they worship cows. Cows who eat grass. You can't even touch them because it might cause you to be reincarnated as some lowly bug. Or worse, who knows? Paul, when he was preaching the Gospel to the people in Greece, said this, if you turn to Acts 17. Because Paul had a great understanding of the the ignorance of this world. He was ridiculed If you look in Acts 17, 18, it says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what what would this idle Bibler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what these new teachings are which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we do, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting, they're used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. What was the point of this? They wanted to be wise. They want to hear this new doctrine. Maybe it'll help them understand the world better. Maybe, maybe it'll make them more, more wise than their friends. So Paul stood in the midst of the air box. Areopagus and said men of Athens I observe that you are very religious in every respe- in all respects for while I was passing through examining the objects of your worship I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god therefore what you worship in ignorance I think it's interesting he uses the word ignorance this I proclaim to you the god who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life, and breath, and all things. See, this points to the mercy of God. He gives to all men life, and breath, and all things. Our food rain. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. He's not saying just Christians. He's saying humankind. We exist because God exists. Is with us. If he sh- shuts the lights off, we're done. If he takes our breath from us, we're done. Even some of your poets have said, "For we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think about the, that the divine nature is like gold, or silver, or stone an image formed by the art and thought of man? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. God has shown His mercy to humankind for eons. When Adam and Eve sinned, He could have flipped the switch and they could have died right there on the spot and boom. No, God created the world to showcase His mercy, to showcase who He is as God. We didn't deserve His love, but He gave We deserve the wrath of God. Because just like these men, we have made futile speculations about God and our hearts were darkened. It doesn't matter if we grew up in the church. We still rejected the truth until the day God showed us the truth. Or if we grew up in the world, from the day that we were born, we were rejecting the truth of God. Verse 22 and 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Don't you see the pattern here? Man rejects God. And, And here in a second it's going to say, verse 24 therefore god gave them over that is it didn't start with god it started with man our accountability to god as men of sin is why god gives us over to our own desires when we reject god he rejects us unless his grace But the typical pattern is, we reject Him, He lets us go. Unbelievers especially. And this is important here in verse 23. It says, They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man. I was trying to think of a good analogy of this because Paul uses the word exchange multiple times from here on. And in this case, it's they had, they knew the glory of God. They knew who God was, so they had the truth. They had this thing, but they exchanged it for something else. They had it, but they exchanged it for something else. So, for those of you who like antiques, Let's let's imagine you've gone to the antique road show. Those of you who know what that is, I think everyone knows. A lot of people, the TV show, you go and take your that piece of wood you found in the backyard, and they tell you it's worth nothing. Or you you bring this this thing that looks who knows what it is, and they tell you, oh, you're a millionaire now. You know you, your grandparents should have told you what that was. So imagine you're going to the antique road show. And you're, you were looking for the rod that Charlton Heston used in the Ten Commandments. Okay? This is, this is my analogy, okay? So don't get lost. And you find it, and the man who has it says, Well, what do you have to give for it? And by some incredible, impossible act of providence, because this would be the only way. You had the actual rod that Moses used in the Exodus. Are you getting where I'm going? And you had it authenticated. Moses signed it, you know. Um, Again, this is a very uh, secular uh, analogy, but he signed it. He had a a letter of authentication. Maybe uh, one of his sons signed it or something. And you offered it in exchange for the fake. That's what it is. This is, this is the, the analogy that I see here. We are exchanging the real thing for something that perishes. Right? That's what he's saying. You're, you're changing the glory of God that never fades, that never perishes, never falls apart for a a form of a corruptible man. A man who will decay. God does not decay. His glory is constant. But here you're, you're exchanging that which is constant and never decays for something that will decay. You're forming it like a, a piece of gold and eventually that gold's going to be tarnished. That silver or the wood will rot. You're worshiping these men, these images that look like men or, or these images that look like a bird or these images that, that depict four-footed animals, maybe a golden calf or some crawling creature. I, I don't know. I can't think of an idol that maybe that's a snake or something. I don't, I don't know of an idol that, uh, that is worshiped that's an animal or, or like a crawling animal. But all that to say... They're exchanging the God who never, ever decays for a God that is constantly decaying, that cannot give them any strength. So because of this exchange of God for this, verse 24, therefore, what's he saying? Because of what they've done, they've rejected and thrown out the real thing and said, you know what? Hey, I'll, I'll trade you the real thing. It, they go to the idol maker and say, "Hey, here's God. Hey, can you give me uh, one of those owls over there?" I'm, I'm not picking on owls because my wife likes owls, but um, you know, whatever the 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 image is, can you give me one of them golden calves? That that would look good in my living room. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God did not put the lust in their heart. It was already there. Remember, their hearts were darkened. It's like God took the bridle off. Just think about that. God had been restraining their lust, restraining their sin, but God let them go. Do what you want. He took the bridle right off and set the horse out. But there weren't any fences. That's that's the picture I see. They did what they wanted. They did it their way as Frank Sinatra is famous for singing. And God gave them over. He he did an action. He he loosed them from their bonds. He said, oh, here's the front door to the barn. See you later. What did that horse do? We don't know. He went wherever he wanted to go, did whatever he wanted to do. And in the case of us, sinners, when He lets us go, it says, it's for the purpose that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So what's in the heart comes out. What's in the heart is displayed for the world to see, to see how ignorant it is to not believe in God, to not follow God, and to not worship Him. Yeah, it may look pretty good to the world, but in the end, we will be dishonoring the body. And he's alluding to something. He's alluding to sexual sh- sin, in, in and and he's getting ready to be explicit about it. But specifically, he's alluding to homosexuality. Verse twenty-five. Again, I told you, "exchanged" is used multiple times. And verse twenty-five says. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Another picture, another analogy from the, uh, the antique road show. Let's suppose that, that you go this time and you found a watch with a letter saying that it belonged to Paul Newman, those of you who know who Paul Newman is, are much older than me. But Paul Newman was an actor and a race car driver. And anyway, let's say you found this authentic Rolex that Paul Newman wore, and it's the one that sold for $17.5 million last year. Actually, it may have been this year, I can't remember. And you found a man selling a replica of that watch. Again, I'm, I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but I want us to see. And it's a bad one. I mean, it's a hideous. It doesn't really look like the original. And you traded for that. That's what God is saying. You have traded this. You're trying to pass off the truth when it's really a lie. You are exchanging something true, the truth of God, for a lie. You had it. Again, we, we have the truth, but we decide to throw it away. We decide, I want something fake. I want something that's not real. That's a terrible exchange. Who would, who in their right mind would trade the authentic watch for a fake knockoff? You know this watch is worth $17 million. And you bought this other watch for a dollar. Or you, you know it's worth a dollar and you say, You know what? I don't like this one. I know it's worth a lot of money, but here, give me that fake one. I want to pass it off as real. That's a terrible exchange. And what is the result of that? How how does that look? It says, and worshipped. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So Paul throws in here an opportunity to glorify God. He is blessed forever no matter what anybody else does. This made me think about watches again. This is actually a watch made by a man named George Daniel. Supposed to be the finest watch ever made. He was considered the finest watchmaker in the world when he died. He made every single watch part of this watch except the spring and the glass every single part by hand him, himself but guess what nobody magnifies that watch they don't turn to the watch and say oh watch you're so amazing you made yourself no they magnify the creator they say George Daniels was a genius he was a fine watchmaker. But what do we do? We turn on God and say, we worship the creation, whether it's sex, whatever it may be. We worship the things created and we forget that God made them. That would never happen in the world. If somebody made an incredible building, an architect made an incredible building, who would get the glory? The architect. Made an incredible bridge. Oh, so and so designed it. But when we look at the creation of God in the universe, the world wants to glorify them. They don't want to create to glorify the God who made them. I know this is sounding really hard, but this irritates me because God deserves the glory. This is why God's wrath is so strong against men. Because God cannot stand our sin. He deserves And is worthy of every ounce of our strength. Every ounce of surrender. You know, if if they started worshipping the watch that George Daniels made, they would not compare in any way to the way people treat God and worship His creation. Why? Just imagine God in an instant made all that we know. You know how long it took Him to take that, make that watch? Over a year. Every day. By Himself. God created all that we know in a week. If you, if, he didn't need time, but, but if you think about it, everything that we see, the minds that He gave us, the eyes that we have, all that we can sense, God created in no time. He deserves the glory. When we see His creation, we should be magnifying Him instead of magnifying His creation. I mean, that's what most magazines are about, you know, worshiping the body, whether it's someone else's body or your own. Or or worshipping money, also created by God. Value, diamonds, guess what? Also created by God. Oil, power, all those things when in their right perspective are good, but men have taken them and worshipped them. They have said, we want authority for ourselves. We don't want to worship God. And we think we're great because we try to reverse engineer what God has made. It's like the Chinese. They they take a, a GM car. There's a, there's a company called Great Wall Motors. It looks just like the GM logo, except it's a W instead of an M. So they, they take the car. They tear it all apart. figure out all the pieces, and then they make a replica of the car. It's not the real thing, but it looks just like it. They reverse engineer it. And oftentimes we do the same thing and then we say, oh, look at me! All these people trying to clone animals and all this science that's trying to, to clone. They're reverse engineering what God has made. They can't explain why it works. There's like, we put this drop and this drop and it happened. They they can't explain the process. They can't explain why life comes from the mean that God has made. So, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they had it, remember. They had that truth but they exchanged it for a lie. This is an encouragement to believers not to give up on truth. And it's an encouragement to the lost to look for the truth that God has already implanted, implanted in your heart. It may, it may be covered with a lot of trash, but it's there. You're, you've suppressed it. You've, you've held it captive, not allowed it to affect your life. So when it says, and this is my translation, because they rejected God and instead worshipped His creation, God gave them over to great degrading passions. This formula is done three times. They exchanged something, God gave them over. He let the bridle off. Do what you want. And then this time He is specific about what sin He's talking about. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged, again, another word exchanged, their natural function for that which is unnatural. The women having sex with women. That's what he's talking about. They exchanged God's natural order from the time of Adam and Eve for their own order. Their... It's completely against the created order. It's like taking one screw out of that watch and hoping it still works. Or taking one of those round, uh, what's that called? A lever? A gear. Yeah, take one of those gears out and see if that watch works well. I don't think so. It's going to stop, it's interconnected. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward another man, one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It's interesting that he puts women first, because in that time that would have been that was almost unheard of. Homosexuality was Common in Athens, most of the Greek city-states, the men were married, but they had a boyfriend. I know this is not a comfortable conversation, but it's true. That's what was going on. So, I believe Paul puts women first to show to the extent at which sin goes. Sin will not be satisfied with fornication. Adultery. It's going to keep going. Sin does not stop until it destroys us. That's why the devil wants us to embrace sin, as we'll see. They abandon, both of them abandon God's role. Of the woman for the man uh, with the man. They they abandoned God's design of marriage and decided, you know what? We want to do what we want to do. God let them go. He let the bridles out. You want to be wild stallions? See you later. You want to be wild mares, whatever? Wild fillies? Let them out. They burn with lust for one another. Or they're consumed with lust for one another. And in my commentary, again, John Murray has a good statement here about this lust, about what this burning is about. He says, but here it is a burning of an insatiable lust that has no natural or legitimate desire of which the lust is the perversion or distortion of. What's he saying? This is complete distortion of what God has made. That doesn't mean that there's not hope for someone in this state. But it just shows the depravity of man. Without God, we will continue to sin and we will sin well. For lack of of better word. We will sin to the extent that we can go. Without God's Restraining hand we will do wickedly and we will love it. And it won't be enough. Isn't that the case? All of us who struggle with sin, when you give in to sin, what's it's a letdown, isn't it? You lie immediately. God gotcha. says um, <clears throat> or You lust, immediate condemnation. Well, conviction with the Lord. It's condemnation with the devil. The devil wants to condemn us. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's better because God does not want anything to do with you. That's the thing sin does not stop with that sin that you're being tempted to do. The devil wants us to fall into deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until we feel like. There's no hope. That's what He wants to do. I know many people who say, man, I'm I'm in a place, there's no way God can save me. I want to tell you something. That's degrading the blood of Christ. That's devaluing what Christ did on the cross. And God gave them up. These are symptoms. They're pointing to what happened in the heart. That's why it's so important and why Jesus was constantly speaking about heart issues. Because if you do not deal with sin in the heart, it's going to come out. It may not be homosexuality, it may not be adultery, or greed, or wickedness, or murder, or deceit, or malice, or gossip. It may not be one of these specific sins. But it will come out. It will be evident. Because God, if you ignore sin, will let the world know. God will not ignore sin. And He will make sure that it's known. (coughs) Paul makes it clear that these, these acts are indecent. Is the word that it has in mind, or shameless is even better. Shameless acts. That doesn't mean that they're without shame, that there are acts that should not be done, should not be spoken. And they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The payment of their sin is, is death. In the end, for all of us, if we live in sin, stay in sin, it's death, eternal torment. Why? Because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have decided that we want to worship ourselves or His creation more than the God who created us. We were intricately woven In our mother's womb. God knew us. Psalm 139. Such a powerful psalm. Talking about how God knows everything about us. And that to me, how does He still love me? Why does He still love me? He knows everything that no one else knows. But He does. And again, again, Verse 28, and we're almost to the end here. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So again, they didn't do something, we don't do something. Okay. It's kind of the idea of hand them over. Okay, Satan, they're yours. That doesn't mean that there's not hope, okay? Because if we if we say there's no hope because there, there is a a pastor that's well, I would I would dare say that he's a heretic. But there's a pastor in Arizona who says and this isn't the only crazy thing he says, okay? But he says that if you're a homosexual, there's no hope of salvation. That's what he says. I I don't see that. Or cuz then if you say that, then there's no hope if you have greed, right? There's no hope if you're a slanderer because Paul doesn't separate these. There are three things that God does in giving up that leads to. Impurity of the the body, sexual sin of every kind, verse, verse 24. Verse 26, he gives a specific sin of homosexuality. And you can put all those letters on the top of it that, that we're using today. People who are confused and and being told by the world that it they should be enjoying themselves. However they feel is feels good. So just as they did not see fit to acknowledge any got God any longer, God give gave them over to a depraved mind. So it's interesting <coughs> the first time It says, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Right? See that? And then, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. So first, their heart wanted to to do something. Next, their passions, oh, I've got to have that that girl or guy or la, 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 I've got to have that. And finally, it's a depraved mind, a mind that does wickedness. And he explains, he makes this list. Again, these are symptoms of the heart. Symptoms of a mind that is not transformed. It is symptoms of passions that are not bridled in. It's symptoms of sin. Period. Period. Being filled. With all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. He kind of groups these, two, these together. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. Oh, sorry. I changed my tone there. Sorry. Why would he put that there? Why would he put that in the list? It's the same thing that we're doing. When we reject God, we're disobeying disobeying His authority. When our children disobey us, they're disobeying the authority God has placed over them. Right? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. (coughs) If I dare say, these things should not be named in the church. They should not be named in us. We should be righteous and not wicked. We should not be greedy. We should not be evil. We should not envy. We should not murder. We should not ha- cause strife, dissension. We should not lie, but be truthful. We should not be full of malice and bitterness. We should not be talking about everybody behind their backs. We shouldn't make talk about them in untruthful ways. That's what a slanderer is. We should not hate God. We should love God. That's the opposite. We should not be insolent. We shouldn't be arrogant. We should be humble, meek. We shouldn't be boastful. Again, humble, meek. We shouldn't be figuring out ways to do wicked things. Inventors of evil makes me think of like hitler and his the doctors that worked with him remember they were they were doing um surgical things on twins to try to figure out different things so wicked we shouldn't be trying to invent evil we should be obedient to parents listen We should have understanding from God. We should be trustworthy. We should be merciful. In the end, He puts a—I mean—a dagger in it. And this, this here, I've, I believe that Romans one thirty-two, in all honesty, is what the world today is doing. If you read it, it says, and although they know. They know. It's not, they're not ignorant. They know it. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So though they know that, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I like what John Murray says here as well. We are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in doing of those things that we know lead to damnation. We hate others as we hate ourselves, and render therefore to them the approval of what we know merits damnation. Iniquity is most aggravated when it meets with no inhibition from the disapproval of others. And when there is collective, undissenting approbation. I know that's a big word. But essentially what he's saying is, when we are in sin, we want to find people who are just like us because it makes us feel good. Oh yeah, you did that? Oh, you're sleeping around with your girlfriend? Oh yay! We should all do that. Or, you're sleeping with your boyfriend? Guy, guy. Girlfriend. Whatever. You're... You're... You're cheating, you're stealing. Why do you think thieves hang out together? One, people don't like thieves in their lives, except thieves. <laughs> but they hang out together because it makes them feel good. You're a thief, I'm a thief, we're all good. Why do you think people who who live in sin live together? Why do they, why do they want to, to share life together? And that's why... Especially those of you who came out of relationships like that, that's why when you became a Christian, what did they stop wanting to hang out with you, Mr. andriot? Yeah, they're like, man, we can't talk about sleeping with our girlfriend anymore or my mistress, or I don't know what age you were it was that the Lord got a hold of you, but um they they don't want to hang out with you anymore because. You're going to tell them the truth. They want people to approve. Oh man, that's great. Yeah. Home run. That sin is awesome. That's what the world wants. They want us to celebrate sin with them. I will not. And I won't stop because it costs me. If it costs me my life, I'm not going to back off on my convictions. You know Why? Because God is worthy to be lived. Our lives should be lived wholly to Him for what He has done for us. This wrath of God I deserved. This wrath of God was my um, where I was headed without Him. When Christ saved me, He transformed me. He changed me. And He told me that I could not live the same way. And when I see sin, I have to confront it.